Hey, I'm Sean. And I'm Jesse. And, and we're, we're the, the DMs, DMs of Vancouver. Vancouver. We're two newish DMs who are still getting the hang of the whole DM thing. So we sit down with a friend every couple of weeks and pick their brain on their approach to DMing. So come along as we figure out how to help our players have the best time possible at the gaming table. everybody before we start talking to our guest this week i just need to quickly say that our theme music is overworld by kevin mcleod 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 um from incompetech um we are very thankful that he has some creative commons music that we are able to use today we're talking to craig chapman he's been playing DD for nearly 20 years and running for about 10 uh, he, on top of just regular running a regular campaign he also runs a series of one shots in a shared world with his campaign called Dungeons and Dragons and View Gutters. These are a series of drop-in one-shots uh, where players play for or play members of the Mercenary Guild that his main players own and run. How's it going, Craig? Pretty swell. <laughs> Cannot complain. And Kevin McLeod is fantastic. Yeah, I, lo- I love a lot of the stuff. I use some of it for uh, battle music sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah. Today we're going to be talking about uh, the impact of death. Um, when a PC dies during a game, how do you handle that? How do you help the player deal with that outcome? Um, talking about maybe bringing party members back to life, if that's even allowed, and uh, possibly even how do you deal with NPC deaths? Um, looking forward to it. Me too. First off, Greg, uh, how do you warn players going into a campaign or even an a adventure or session about like a high likelihood of death and how that's going to be handled? So I think Ray touched on it as well in his interview, if I recall correctly. And I suspect that you'll hear this from a lot of DMs. But so much of D&D is communication, right? At the very outset of a game, you want to make sure that all of your players have similar expectations to you going in. You don't want to run a hack-and-slash campaign for a bunch of players who are expecting high political intrigue or vice versa. Which means that sometimes as a DM, you have to bite your tongue and do something that you you might not want to do as much. But really, you'll have a much better time if your players are having a good time. And death follows the same idea. When I start a campaign, I explicitly warn my players that while I don't try and cause player death, I'm not going to hold their hand either. Uh, I generally shy away from it in the first few levels because I find that dying to an unlucky crit or like a, a single poor decision is just not fun. Right, we're we're all playing D anD D to have a good time, and losing a character that you spent five or more hours creating the story for and rolling up the stats for and playing with, it's just no good in my opinion. So I try and warn my players ahead of time. Hey, look, you know, you might be safe at the, at the beginning unless you make a series of really poor decisions, but as the campaign continues, you are very likely going to be put into positions where a wrong choice could lead to death. That said. I try to balance my encounters so that players won't die, at least in my regular campaigns. Um, In my one-shots, I warn my players very frequently, pretty much at the outset of every session, hey look, this is deadly, Uh, this is potentially going to kill one or more of you, those of you that survive will get the reward, those of you that don't, well, you're dead. So your family can get some, but that's it. I generally not like, or don't like running high mortality games. I, I don't find it fun to wipe parties. Uh, I've done it once, and it was uh, it was devastating. <laughs> um, I have killed players before, but it's very typically a dramatic, emotive moment. Uh, sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll allow players to put themselves at risk of death 
and fall victim to that in order to save other players. But you know, generally, yeah, I, I like to to warn people well in advance before pen has even hit paper, before characters have been rolled, that hey, look, this is my policy on on death. See, so you're trying to get more of a movie or a TV show vibe where like dying is a big thing and not like a video game where it's like, oh, well, I died again. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Speaking of those like those times where a player um, just gets into like a suddenly bad situation, like these freak deaths where the player rolled horribly or you accidentally critted five times in a row, <laughs> especially in situations that really should have been low stakes, how, how do you deal with that? Again, I think that a lot of that is uh, pre-planning. I think that if you plan well ahead of time, you can eliminate most of these instances. However, you know, they're still going to sneak through. And sometimes if a player rolls particularly poorly and you roll particularly well, it's, you know, it's just going to happen. Generally speaking, it shouldn't happen unless you know, somebody's fighting something with at least a decent challenge rating uh, or doing something particularly dangerous. And in those instances, well... You know, it, it sucks that the player dies, or the character dies, rather. But the way to work around that is to give their death some form of meaning, right? Especially if the character has been in the party for quite some time. I think the biggest instance of freak death that I've got going for me is in my currently ongoing campaign. My brother stepped in front of a fireball spell uh, at point-blank range, out of choice, out of choice, uh, in order to save two other members of the party. He saw the fireball spell being cast, and I allowed him to roll a dexterity saving throw in order to step in front of it, but I told him, if you do this, the damage will be maximized. He made the decision to do it, he had his chest blown out, and his character died. It was his choice, he knew that he might survive, he knew that it, it was strongly possible that he was going to die, but I find that if you plan well, then at least these deaths have meaning. I can't really think of a single instance outside of my very early years of DMing where I've just accidentally killed a player because I think that basically means that you didn't balance your encounter properly. I don't really fudge dice rolls. I'll sometimes change the just stats. Gonna ask that. Yeah, I'll sometimes change the stats of a monster on the fly, but I do warn the players that that's happening in character, not like out of character. I'll say like, "Oh, you noticed that this creature has been has been struck and, you know, now he seems angrier and you've triggered some process within him his skin is changing hue and he he's growing oddly bigger so i'll sometimes change the stats on the fly but i don't fudge dice rolls and even not fudging dice rolls i haven't killed a player uh, accidentally in, in years i suppose that if it happened my advice to a, a new or burgeoning dm would be don't make too small of a deal of it if it happens in your regular campaign Make it important, right? Make it a focal point for the next session or two. If a character dies, that player, the person who was running that character, is no doubt going to be well, pretty upset about it, unless they're one of the people who views death as a video game phenomenon. But as I discussed earlier, you know, it's it's kind of what you want from the game. If, if you're running for a party of people who believe that, I'll make, make death uh, a stepping stone to get over, right? You could always have a, a campaign take place, or a session take place, with them trying to recover the person's soul, or with that person coming back to life, having gone through some soul-changing experience or something like that. There's, There's Buffy the Vampire Slayer, yeah. like, I was in heaven. Yeah, one thing that I, I read that I thought was quite interesting was where the DM would do a very quick, like, 10-minute interlude with just that player, 
and allow them to speak to their god or speak to one of their god's avatars That's or really a demigod cool. or something like that and basically give them the opportunity to come back at some form of, of cost or with some kind of contract attached. Like, sure, you can come back to life if you agree to hunt down this specific creature or something like that. So so I guess that means that in most of the games that you run, that Resurrection, it's it's a viable option if, if the player who died and the party want to pursue it. Absolutely. I've never barred Resurrection for a character. I mean, a Disintegrate spell or something like that, Orb of Annihilation... There's there's abilities that would render Resurrection very difficult, but I don't think I would ever fully bar Resurrection. However, I do attach quite a few costs to Resurrection, uh, both materially and spiritually, to not intentionally really disincentivize it, but more to, to make it clear that it's not something that you just go and do. You don't just go to the temple and say, oh, you know, unfortunately, Fred the fighter died, Let's get him resurrected. Here's your diamond flip. Yeah, absolutely. You need to find the right person to do it. And, you know, money is, is money. Like, it's, it's not something that you want to part with easily unless you're handing out bucket loads of coins. But, you know, that's not the type of game I run. If, if that's the type of game you run, that's totally fine. But, you know, maybe then give them more things to spend their money on. So even if they have the money for resurrection, they might not want to spend it. I don't know. That's just my, my thoughts on the spell and the process. Uh, it helps now that, like, I think with 5th Ed, True Resurrection is like a ninth level spell. It costs 10,000 golden components at least, or maybe 100,000. It's, mm -hmm. it's not cheap. If you have a group of, like, 5th level players, that might be, like, several months out of game getting that together. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. Yeah. yeah. One, one thing that I've done, um, I got this from Critical Role, uh, because I just started a campaign, and one of the players died, and... They wanted to resurrect him, and there was a cleric in town, but I used, like, a, it was basically a skill challenge where each player had to, like, convince, like, this player's character, like, calling out into the afterworld, like, convince them to come back from their peaceful rest, and depending on how they rolled, it would change DC that I was rolling, and that would determine if the resurrection was successful, but, like, there was more... It wasn't just like, you go to the cleric, you pay the money, they resurrect you. It's like, no, you have to like do a little bit of work, and there's still a chance it won't work. Because, yeah, you don't want death to feel cheap. Absolutely. I like how Game of Thrones handles it, the, uh, the TV series, uh, the books as well, without spoilers attached uh, for anybody that still somehow might not have seen it and yet be listening to this podcast. The spiritual and, and personality costs attached to resurrection are quite significant. Somebody who dies doesn't come back as the same person. And I make that abundantly clear to the point of, you know, with the player's permission sometimes, getting them to re-roll a personality trait uh, or getting them to roll on a long-term madness table or something of that sort. Something that, that makes their character very clearly not the same person that went through Death's Door. What I like about that example, uh, from the books, I don't think I got that from the TV show, actually. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm way behind. That's totally I'm, fair. I'm also fine with spoilers. In the books, it's not just a cost of the resurrected. The person doing the resurrecting had a high spiritual cost as well, if I recall. Absolutely, yeah. With Buffy, when she got resurrected, like she came back and people are like, oh man, she's so depressed. And it took them a while to find out that, no, she was in heaven. She was happy and you ripped her back into this dark, 
world that she doesn't want to be in anymore. She doesn't see the point anymore. So, yeah, the idea that when somebody is resurrected, that they are either changed somehow or are extremely like depressed or unhappy that you've taken something great away from them. Absolutely. Uh, I've had about a player death a campaign, if not a couple, um, but at least one very pivotal one in every campaign. I, I already discussed my brothers earlier, but I had one maybe two years before that with a character as well. And the way we handled that death was entirely different from the way we handled uh, my, my brother's character's death. This character, two years ago, when he died, he had made... A uh, friend is, is not quite strong enough of a word. Not quite a lover, but somewhere in between the two. He had, he had made this acquaintance with uh, one of the antagonists of the campaign. Now, this antagonist was just misunderstood. Not, you know, truly evil more roped into working for the big bad out of a lack of choice. Uh, and the player character in question was brought to the Feywild by this antagonist and resurrected by the big bad. And sort of in a, uh, a Power Rangers-like twist, forced to fight against his own party. <laughs> and I, I ran a separate, well, maybe about five or six couple-hour Skype sessions with the player uh, going through the Feywild and going through this experience and, and having a very life-altering uh, change in impersonality, going from being this, this very innocent character who believed the best of everybody to still, you know, trying to be that optimistic character, but really becoming a lot more fatalist and uh, a lot more uh, violent and you know, quick to, to react in anger. I, I do think that ultimately the spiritual spiritual cost associated with, with Resurrection should be higher than the material cost, because I think that that's really what makes it an experience for the players. So pivoting away from the player who dies to the party that has lost somebody, and more specifically the players running those characters, how do you deal with the various types of reactions? What kinds of reactions have you seen from parties? Uh, every time I've killed somebody thus far, it has for the most part been at least a liked, if not beloved character. Uh, as a matter of fact, most of my pivotal character deaths have been the, um, not like the straight man of the party or the stolid warrior or even the scholar or something like that. No, the archetype that, that most of my dead characters have filled has been the, you know, the universally beloved glue that holds the party together. Oh, the heart of the team. Absolutely, the heart of the team. And dealing with the reactions to the loss of the heart of the team has been very interesting. Uh, it's not been intentional. I haven't gone out of my way to kill the heart of the team. It's just the person that seems to put themselves in that spot most often. You know, they see that their team is about to die, or they see that a you know a beloved NPC is at death's door or something like that, and they throw themselves out there to save their team or to save their friend, um, and the party just breaks. Losing one of those roles, losing the, the glue that holds the party together, even losing like the, the brains or the, the, the strong arm, taking that archetype out, going back to the television series uh, analogy because it just works so well, it's, it's very clear when you replace a character, right? When you put a new character in on a television series to replace one that is no longer part of the team, uh, the one that immediately comes to mind for me is when Colonel Jack O'Neill in Stargate was, was forced into the stasis tube in Antarctica, and he was replaced by, oh, I can't even remember his name. He was only there for a few seasons. Um, but, you know, that's exactly it. I, I couldn't remember his name. He, wa he was a consequential character, and I'm sure that 
had I gone back and watched it again, I, I wouldn't have disliked him. But losing a character like that is impactful to the DM and the players. Now, as to how to deal with that, that's um, it's a challenge. When you lose any character, parties will react differently. Some will, you know, break down. Some will kind of just make it their goal to go resurrect that character. Some, not in my experience, because I don't run those types of games, but some will just treat it like an obstacle to be overcome and, you know, go get them resurrected, go on with the campaign. I think that um, if you're dealing with a party that's taking it emotionally very hard, one of the best things that you can do for them is to allow them a couple of sessions where you make it a pivotal part of the campaign, whether that's allowing them some out-of-character, well, some in-character moments, rather, to grieve with the other players, breaking the news to that player's family, or that the character's family, rather. Uh, it's an important distinction, player and character death. <laughs> sorry, friends, parents. Your your son died while playing D&D. We're so sorry. It's like that choked terrible on old Dungeons & Dragons uh, comic or movie Ch- or whatever Chick it was. Chick Trick. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's important to make the grieving process for the character a part of the story. So what I always go out to do is, you know, I always make sure that the, the characters get a chance to, to have their space um, to, to communicate with other characters. Uh, I, I make downtime and communication with other characters in the party a big part of, of my sessions. Um, not like a massive part, but I try to at least put one instance of that into every session just to get to know each other's characters better, to flesh out the world, what have you. Um, And dealing with death becomes a large part of those scenes. In my most recent campaign, when my brother's character died, they ended up making the choice to not resurrect him, um, partly because of money. They had the money, but mostly because they didn't want him to come back as anything less than the heart of the party. Because they knew that there was costs, and him coming back different could... Absolutely. Be worse than just having him back. Yeah. Now, the uh, big heart-rending part of that was that they they voted. Uh, they did a blind vote on whether or not to bring him back. One of the players, one of the characters, but the, you know, the player making the decision, didn't vote. And she ended up being the tie-breaking vote because half the party voted to resurrect him, half the party voted not to. And this fifth player, her character, ended up having, over the course of the next session and a half to decide whether or not he was going to be resurrected. And she ended up, you know, she she didn't vote because she wanted the choice to be made for her. Uh, she was the character who was saved by his death. So she felt like, you know, she she didn't want to make that decision. She wanted it to be taken out of her hands and ended up being the, the character that had to decide. As I said earlier, making death part of the, the story is a big, big deal. And I can't think of a more character-defining moment than having to decide not to, to resurrect your friend, uh, the person who died to save your life, because you don't want them to come back as somebody entirely different, or even, you know, mostly different. Ultimately, my advice to the DMs would be that no matter whether you're a more action-oriented hack-and-slash kind of campaign, or whether you're a campaign full of political intrigue where a character might die to poison, or whether you're more of a, a high fantasy, like, the hero dies saving their friends sort of campaign, make it a part of the story. Whether it's, oh, now the party has to trek out of this dungeon to find a cleric and to resurrect their friend, and yes, they've got the money, but they have to find a diamond first. You You can easily make the resurrection process a part of the story, and it doesn't cheapen the death. It doesn't make it any less. 
it just makes it memorable, right? It makes it something that the party is going to look back on and go, oh, do you remember when this happened? Like, even two or three months later, my party and uh, my current ongoing campaign was saying, like, oh, we missed this character. Oh, we don't really want to talk about his death, etc. Okay, uh, follow-up to that then. Uh, especially when you have multiple sessions where there's, like, a grieving process and stuff like that. What do you do with the player whose character is dead? <laughs> because it's, it's difficult to organically introduce a, a new character to the party while they're in the middle of this process without... Without messing things up. Messing things up. Yeah. Uh, now, in this particular case, my brother had indicated already that he wanted to play a new character and had a character sitting in the, the sidelines sort of waiting to step in. For the character, or for, for the player whose character has died, I, you know, I give them some options. Going back a couple of years, the player whose character died uh, in my older campaign, who ended up journeying to the Fae, he had to take some time away from the game anyways, so it worked out pretty perfectly, and we ran our Skype sessions, and then his character rejoined the party, eventually. Now, my personal preference is to try and get the player back into the game as soon as possible, and this, I find, is much easier if your party shares a common goal. So if you have something linking the party together beyond just character relationships then the best way to bring in a new character is to go, okay, well, this person is also working towards that goal, whether it's they're a shared member of some resistance organization, or they're also hunting for the MacGuffin, or you know, perhaps they were even a servant of one of the antagonists who has turned good or something like that. Connect them to the story somehow. Don't just have them be a long-lost brother. I, I hate that trope. I hate the whole, like, oh, your brother appears and he's the same character and the same stats, and he's just got brown hair instead of blonde hair. Unless you're playing a later harder campaign where you can make that really <laughs> yeah. funny. Absolutely. Yeah, if that's the goal of your campaign, if you're running more of a humorous, comedic campaign, totally fine. But if you're running a serious campaign, the best way to deal with it, in my opinion, is to try and tie them into the story somehow. Uh, even if they're foisted on the party without the party's agreement, it's, uh, it's important to to connect them somehow so that the party can't just go, oh, we don't want this person here. Now, a follow-up to that, don't try and replace their archetype. If your party heart dies, let a new one evolve from within the ranks of the party. Don't bring in a new party heart. Because, going back to Stargate, when Jack O'Neill died, they lost the leader of the group, and it was, I think it was Colonel Cameron Mitchell, if I recall correctly. Yes. I have uh, all ten seasons sitting right oh, okay. there. Okay. Well, perfect. I'm glad I remembered. <laughs> Cameron Mitchell... Same exact role. Almost the same exact type of character. He was so similar. For the first while. For the first little while, right? And he developed uh, as time went on, but he was so similar that it was almost a little bit jarring because it's, it was like, well, you would expect this person to act in a certain way, and when they didn't, it was, um, it was, it was weird. Yeah. It was, it was unsettling. And the players in your group will feel the same way if you try and have the same player pick the same archetype of character. So work with your, your party. So that, that, well, that sounds like a conversation you have to have with the player whose character died. Be like, look, don't try to replace that character. Come up with somebody new and we'll work out how to, like, you'll, the party will figure things out. And Absolutely. You have to have a conversation with them and the party, like, don't try to just bring this person back because it'll be weird. Yeah. It also sounds like trying to bring some, like, a new character in and trying to fit them into the story. It sounds like, like, I'm just thinking about that and for my campaign, like, it feels like there could be a lot of, like, weirdness that you either have to gloss over or come up with some in-world. Like, yeah, you guys were, like, ten stories down in this dungeon and... 
Bob showed up. <laughs> Coincidentally, a day after Fred died. Like, hmm. I feel like it can be weird, but that's one of those maybe one of those things that you just have to like hand wave it a little bit, but also just talk to your party about how to deal with it. Absolutely. The important thing to remember, or at least I think the important thing to remember with D and D is that all of these people are the protagonists in a story. And in a TV series or a novel, if a character dies and a new character shows up, you don't think any anything of it. Almost, you know, a good writer will go out of their way to try and create the uh, the backdrop so that if a new character shows up, it's not shocking and and weird. But because these are the protagonists, it's expected that a little bit of weird stuff is going to happen around them. People are more willing to accept that you know because these are the heroes. It's okay if something occasionally unusual happens. I think the one difference here between D&D and media that is just consumed and not interacted with, even video games, is that in all of those things, there is a pre-planned story. They are able to plan, you know, like several episodes or like the writers know ahead of time that this thing is going to happen, or at least you hope that they do. (laughs) So they're able to like have it happen and then like, cut to a month later whereas in D&D it's like yeah you're in like the second to last level in this dungeon and you this player has to have their character come in somehow so I feel like that's where the weirdness comes from but I mean it's also one of those things where you're making the story right you can easily like you can easily adjust it a bit to make that character appear or alternatively depending on your player and depending how okay they are with maybe missing a session you can just be like look, I don't have a good way to do this, especially if you want to create, you know, X or Y type of character. How about we, we finish the dungeon and when we come back, we'll, we'll do a time skip or, you know, we'll, we'll skip back to when they're back at base or whatever and then they can meet your character. Some DMs love to just insert a character right away as soon as a character dies. Their, their personal preference is they want every player playing the entire time. I like that kind of ideology, but... I also take it with a grain of salt. Uh, I have in the past told players, hey, look, I can bring your character in next session, but not until partway through the session. So if you don't want to show up for the first hour or two, totally fine. You can show up and watch, but you won't be able to play uh, if you want to come that extra hour or two before your character arrives. Or at least, you know, joins the story. You could potentially have them run a monster or two or something yeah, as well. Absolutely. Yeah, you can You can include them somehow. Uh, whether it's by playing as an NPC or playing a monster, however you really want to do it. But it basically boils down to you want their character to to enter the party as soon as possible, but also in a way that makes sense. You don't want them to just appear from nowhere, unless you're running a, a campaign where that would make sense. You know, if you're members of some mages guild where... You know, they are, they're always going to have X number of people on a mission and they can tell that somebody has died and send a replacement. Uh, or you're working for the gods and they'll immediately pop in some other heroic adventurer from sometime in the, the past or from whatever plane they reside in. There's times where that can make sense. The one that I see most often is this player is, well, this character is imprisoned and you save them from their imprisonment and they join your party. It works. I feel like it's uh, it's the lazy solution uh and i see it so frequently and discussed so commonly that it, it must be out there in an enormous amount of games i feel like it's the old standby yeah kind of thing. absolutely so when a new character is brought in when the player is creating that character how do you deal with them especially at higher levels not having the same equipment 
that the other players because like if a character dies at, at in especially in fifth edition like you know after seventh level they'll probably have a magic item or two or a bunch of small minor ones how do you deal with a new character coming in who's just got like got my trusty longsword and nothing else i give them more than their trusty longsword uh, i'm not a fan of having characters at multiple different power levels in my regular campaigns I try and keep them all around the same level of power, which means having the same amount of, of magic loot. I'm, uh, I've been accused of being stingy with magic before. I certainly don't hand it out constantly. It's not like the low-level cave full of goblins has a plus-one magic longsword in it. So it's not as big of a deal for me, because generally my players um, don't have buckets full of magic loot sitting back at their stronghold. I feel like fifth is actually really well-balanced for that anyway. Uh having run a high magic item game, it actually really upsets the balance. I think 5th is specifically designed to run low magic, or at least relatively low magic, you know, like one or two items. I think actually specifically you're only allowed to attune to two magic items. Three. Three? Okay. Yeah. Three magic items in 5th edition. Uh, I've never had a point where my players had three magic items to attune to, because generally speaking, I'll give them you know two or three cool utility trinkets, like earrings that allow them to communicate from the distance via the, the message spell or something like that, and then maybe one or two cool magic items. I generally don't give them a ton of high-level artifacts. So bringing in a new player and not having them have a ton of magical artifacts is never an issue. I, I usually give them the freedom to pick you know, one or two, or I'll roll for it, uh, and, or work with them to come up with one. I homebrew a lot of my own magic items, because... As fun as it is choosing them from the book, it's way more fun making your own. Agreed. Yeah. I guess it's, I'm just curious because, like, my players right now in the campaign I'm in, they all have a bunch. They're all, they've got three and, like, one or two others, but they're all, like, magic items that I've I've taken, like, a belt of dwarven strength and broken it into a couple of items so that, like, the constitution bonus is a separate item. The strength or the oh, understanding okay. language. So, like, they end up with more items. And so I just, and the, it's all from the stuff that's happened. So, I guess I guess it's on a campaign and DM basis where like when a new player comes in, it really depends on how you've been handing out magic items. Uh, I think I actually have a, a good response for this one. It's uh, having them have a magic item, especially something that's distinct from what the rest of the party has, makes them like in character an immediately interesting force. You take this person seriously because you know. They have a flaming longsword, and that's the thing you've never seen before, or whatever. So, like, and balance it with the rest of the party. Don't make it better than their items, but make it, if you make it distinct, it's it's almost like an extra character trait sometimes. It's a, Yeah, it's a symbol that they've been on just as many cool adventures as you have. Exactly. I try and make sure that my worlds are always living, and that my players encounter NPCs with magical items um, to the same extent that they have them. And that means that having a, a new character come in with a magic item isn't this weird, strange thing of, oh, you know, we had to work for weeks to get these magic items. How did this guy just get one when he started? That's not fair. Uh, generally speaking, I play with people who are like, well, we want them to come in at the same level of power. It's no fun if all at varying levels of power and everybody is, you know, doing or capable of doing very different things in terms of, you know, their, their strengths. Okay. Um, we've talked about NPCs a bunch of times, and I'm mm -hmm. kind of wondering... A good way to make players take NPC death, even if it's other anim like enemies, seriously. Because when you're running like a farm boy game and you end up fighting some bandits, depending on the players, some players are really good with it and also feel like, yeah, we knock them out. But 
you experience, you run into a lot of players who are just like, well, I kill the guy. It's like, okay, you're a farm boy. You've never killed anyone before. When it comes to to enemy death, that's a that's a whole different ball game than uh, friendly NPC death. Now, enemy death, I find that a lot of players will justify murder as an othering thing. They they turn the the orcs into these faceless monsters. So even if the orcs uh you know scream and beg for mercy, they still get murdered. Uh, generally, I find that if an enemy begs or you know lays down their arms and surrenders, my players are unlikely to, to you know torture or murder them and if they do i'm not going to role play through the thing but i am going to make it uncomfortable for them and make it abundantly clear to them in character and out because i think that's a you know an important distinction and you need to make it feel that way for both the player and the character that it's not a pleasant experience and it's not something that you want to have to do you don't want to murder somebody who's surrendered to you you don't want to torture somebody who's willing to help you you know give give them the out through the character, you know, have the bandits surrender once their leader has died. Uh, have them uh, huddle up against the wall and hide. One piece of advice that I saw that relates a bit more to mechanics but helps with this is uh, double your enemy's health. And once they reach half health, that's when they surrender. Uh, it doesn't work incredibly well, and I'm actually tinkering with the system right now to sort of alleviate that uh, wound system whereby... Once you're at your wound points, that's when an enemy will start surrendering. Yeah, having a morale system of any kind helps. And Definitely. It just kind of sucks right now that you have to homebrew it. Yeah. One thing, and we'll probably talk about this much more in a later episode, talking to players about problems, is that if you have a player who's kind of treating it as their happy, fun time murder simulator, maybe have a conversation with them about, like, hey, maybe don't. It's one thing if their character is genuinely a sociopath. And I have had players play excellent sociopaths where it's like, oh yeah, no, I, I pull my sword out of his chest and casually wipe it off and look at the rest of my party like, what's so weird about what I just did? But that's different than the player going, oh, I'm a murder hobo, I'm here to loot, kill, and uh, sometimes maim, and not always in that order. Yeah, I... The, the killing and maiming process. <laughs> um, my, my, main, my main worry is when you're playing a character who is ostensibly a good guy, like actually like pure of heart hero who's just like, oh, this bandit's surrendered, I killed him. Why? <laughs> now, I think that this is, this is as a player. Uh, I don't play particularly often. So I played a, a Pathfinder Cavalier in a game once. Um, and this, this Cavalier, well, every Cavalier in Pathfinder, when you picked them, you had to pick an order to go along with them. And these were essentially rules that your character had to live by if they wanted to maintain their cavalier status and keep all the cool abilities that went hand-in-hand hand with that. So similar to Paladins. Similar to Paladins. 5th uh, edition has kind of done away with that because I guess wizards kind of realized, hey look, my, our players aren't really listening to their alignment. They're kind of going along more with a personal code. Uh, and I think that's the best way to handle it. I think if you play a character that's got lawful in their alignment, you should have a code. You know, and you should be very explicit with yourself and your character and your DM what that code is. And if a character is playing a lawful character, or if a player is playing a lawful character, uh, the DM should talk to the player and go, you know what, okay, well, what's your, what's your code? Do you murder innocents? Do you do this? And then the DM can work that into the story, and they can make it an important part of, oh, you know, this bandit has surrendered, and your half-orc barbarian who's known nothing but savage life on the plains is going to murder him. Do you let it happen? Right? What do you do? I think it's important to remind remind players 
what their characters believe. Now, I don't like the alignment system at all. I generally, if I have to roll with it, what I do is I change good into selfless and evil into selfish. So it's rather than I'm evil, because who the hell says that? My goals are, are personal. I want power. And the reason that I want power is, oh, you know, I was mistreated as a child or whatever, and I want to get revenge. Whatever it might be, it's, it's I want this for everybody or just for me. When it comes to a character who is ostensibly a law-oriented, good, righteous character committing these kinds of murders, that is generally a player issue as opposed to a character issue. Exactly. Uh, and I think it's important to approach it as a player issue and not as a character issue. Thorvald, the uh, paladin of Tyr, isn't going to go around butchering innocents unless they've really done some stump stuff to offend Tyr. Um, but Jim, playing Torvald, might go, oh, you know what, I want to murder this guy because he injured my character. It's important to talk to Jim and not Torvald, because Torvald's really not the one at fault here, and treating him like he is is unfair to the character and to their relationships with the rest of the party. You need to talk to the player and go, okay, well, do you really want to play Torvald as this lawful paragon of virtue character, or do you want to maybe play him as a fast and loose bad cop sort of character because you can totally do that and it could be a lot of fun if you play a bad cop paladin but we have to make that clear at the outset we have to communicate and go okay what what does death mean to you and to your character and what do you want it to mean to you and your character it sounds it sounds like so far like so much of what you've been saying is it's communication like talking talking to your players before the game not just to say like hey death is a thing that will happen but also trying to impress upon them that death is a serious thing your characters aren't going to treat it like it's just, ah, that was just some thing that I just killed. Like, no, that was a bandit who probably had a reason for becoming a bandit. The, the characters should treat it like it's a big deal. Absolutely. Anytime they have to murder a sentient being, even like a non-sentient being, even an animal, right? They should have a bit of a twinge of conscience, especially if they're a, a supposedly good character. It's one thing if it's in the heat of a fight. Like, if you're fighting yeah. a bear and it's going to kill you if you don't kill it. Absolutely. That's, that's yeah. a certain thing. Which you still should elicit some reaction. But, mm -hmm. like, yeah, once it's someone who surrendered or who has stopped fighting you. The other important thing to, to, keep, to keep in mind here is, is not just communication, as I mentioned at the, the very outset of our, our discussion here. It's um, theme. Now... I've been listening to a uh, very interesting podcast on the history of Rome by Mike Duncan recently, uh, and one thing that he discussed was uh, Iron Age morality. Him and Dan Carlin both actually have brought it up. In the Iron Age, right, in the Bronze Age, in these earlier periods of human history, murder was just a thing that happened, right? You just you killed people for minor offenses, and it wasn't something that really shook you or bothered you or, or hurt you, because you'd kind of inured yourself to it. You, you were aware of it happening, but it didn't really phase you because everyone did it. When you only had a sword to work with and you weren't shooting somebody from a mile away with a sniper rifle, you had to kind of build up a, a barrier around yourself to murder. So if you're playing with a bunch of characters who grew up in this kind of Iron Age setting of, well, murder is just a thing that happens, well, you, you don't necessarily have to make every single murder super significant. I think it might actually cheapen the experience if every single bandit death is this horrific, brutal thing. This, this Shakespearean tragedy yeah, unfolding every time you <laughs> deal with a bandit. I think it definitely comes back to like yeah, the tone that you said at the start of your game where you have to let your players know that like sometimes death is going to be meaningful for like the bad guys, 
maybe most of the time it isn't. Goblinoid creatures, like, yeah, nobody is going to bat, bat an eye if you kill one. But if you kill a bandit, like, your character's probably going to feel bad kind of thing. Absolutely. Uh, I think one of the important things to do is to make sure that your antagonists and your NPCs, the villains especially, have very human motivations and goals. One of my favorite villains that I've ever run was run in the same game where that character died and went to the Feywild. He was a villain, but again, not really by choice. Uh, he had been exiled from his town because he had a murder, the murder of his wife, actually, blamed on him. But he was not guilty of that murder, and he knew it. And the party had stopped him numerous times from getting his revenge on the town, uh, or you know, being in the process of getting his revenge on the town. And they could never bring themselves to kill him, but they did grow to really dislike him. And some of them even, you know, liked him. It was a very mixed thing of like, well, we know that what he did is bad, but as characters and as players, can we really blame him? Killing a character like that will give the death meaning. Killing a character who's got an established story, even if it's a simple one, right? Even if it's like a, this bandit was from the local farm and you recognize him as being from the farm and you know that his his dad passed away, and he really had no chance, right? He, he had to turn to banditry to survive because nobody would help him for whatever reason. It gives those deaths importance, and it allows you to cement the theme of your world, allows you to help the players develop their characters, all these things. Basically, don't make every death that Shakespearean tragedy, but make sure that there's the opportunity for a few of them to be. All right. I think that brings us up to our last question, Sean. Uh, so, when you were first starting out as a DM, what is something that you wish that you now could tell yourself back then? About the impact of death, or just DMing in about the impact of death? Yeah. Okay. Well, I think if I could, if I could go back to earlier me and, and tell me ten plus years ago something about death, it would probably be not to avoid it, but also not to seek it out for no reason. I think that I was a little bit hesitant to kill players because I'd heard so many negative things about doing it and I had never seen myself as somebody who wanted to off a player. But as a result of that, I possibly missed some opportunities for, for really amazing experiences. Player character, character deaths, uh, can really, really shape a campaign and can be one of those things that the party remembers out of character, you know, as, as people many years into the future. If I went back to my old group and talked to them about the impact of you know, this character's death, he went to the Feywild, even though he came back to the party, it was a super important experience because it brought different members of the party close together, taught them a lot about each other, it allowed them to sort of reshape who they were and grow as characters because it's like, oh, well, you know, our heart died, our glue died, he wouldn't want us to, to be awful to each other, he wouldn't want us to murder these innocents, he wouldn't want us to do this or this or this. It basically meant that they had an experience, uh, and making death something that you choose to, to not do, or that you choose to do all the time, I think that that cheapens the experience. I think that no matter what kind of campaign you're running, whether it's hack and slash, or role-playing heavy, or somewhere in between, you don't want death to just be a minor thing, unless that's a focal point of the campaign. You want it to be something that, that matters. And if it's a focal point of the campaign, what does that do to the people who were dying constantly? If your character is constantly coming back from the grave through some magical interference or godly power or, or what have you, what is that going to do to their brain? What is that going to do to their character's personality? Death is something that matters. It's not something that you should avoid. It's not something that you should seek out. 
And it's something you should strive to apply meaning to as much as possible. Cool. Well, thanks, Craig. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you, guys. That was really helpful for me. <laughs> yeah, so... This, again, has been Craig Chapman. Thanks so much for coming out. Is there any place online you would like people to find you or find your event if they live in the area? Or well, we can uh, also cut this if you don't want to give no, out that information. that's totally fine. I run an open Facebook group for uh, D&D players. It's entirely open to anybody that wants to pop in. It's called Dungeons and & Dragons and & Do-Gooders. And there's a very strong chance that somebody you know is a part of that group because I have people from all across the Tri-Cities, Vancouver... Uh, Maple Ridge, Abbotsford, everywhere coming into play. There's about 50 plus different people in the group now. And anybody is willing to drop by whenever I run a session. I, I don't bar it. And uh, I just want more people to play D&D and have fun. Cool. <laughs> Always a worthy goal. Hey guys, roll for initiative. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, and we do have a social media presence. So please, uh, on Twitter or our Facebook page, uh, DMs of Vancouver, uh, come check it out. And uh, please check out our shows on iTunes and Google Play. Uh, please, you know, rate and subscribe and maybe share them with your friends. If you like the show, tell some folks about it. Yeah. See you next time. Yeah, thanks a lot.